How's your prayer life? Everybody just love praying. You just can't get enough of it. Um, I, I'm glad. I'm glad that's the case. Uh, for me, I can't say it's been quite that uh, quite enthu- that enthusiastic. If you ask me, like, man, do you just love praying? After two brutal years of the pandemic and economic uncertainty, and it just seems like there's a war or a threat of war around every corner every time you turn on the TV, I've found it very hard to be a prayerful person. I found it very easy to be an anxious person, and I found it very hard to be a prayerful person. And you might be like, well, surely with all this chaos, it would drive us to pray. And yes, I do think that prayer is, uh, can drive out low-grade anxiety, but I've also found that low-grade anxiety can make you not want to pray. It can make you so distracted, so discouraged, so defeated, that you're just like, I can't even pray. Um, it's a disease that, cure, that makes the cure taste badly. Like, I know if I can pray, it'll help with some of this anxiety, but the anxiety actually makes me not want to pray. Here's what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Now, Paul isn't saying you can just turn anxiety off with a switch. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't you just be like, man, I'm feeling anxious. Let me just hit that switch. Oh, I'm not anxious anymore. That's great. I'm all good. Or if you're like, I haven't been anxious for a while. Maybe I'll just flip the anxiety switch just to see what it's like again, you know, and then I'm done with it. I'll turn it back off again. He's not saying that. That'd be nice. Um, There's not an anxiety switch that we can flip on and off. He's not saying that you don't need therapy, that therapy doesn't have anything. You need to just pray your anxiety away. He's not saying that anxiety medicine isn't useful or helpful. All those things are true. But what he is saying is you do have some say into whether or not you are anxious. Um, Paul's suggesting that prayer and thanksgiving, bringing your needs to a good and generous God, can cure some low-grade anxiety. Some of the ways that we are living do not make us long for prayer. They make us anxious. And what Paul is saying, we can change some of the ways that we live, and it'll change our desires, it'll change some of our emotional stabilities. Now, the churches I grew up in taught me to pray very different types of prayers, though. They were really less about being raw and honest with God and being like, God, I am anxious, I am afraid, I'm so thankful and grateful for these things, but... I need you. They were less about the raw realities of my mental health and desperate dependence on God, and they were more about theologically saying the right things. And there's a place for that. But they were really more interested in making sure that my prayers sounded nice, that I didn't say anything crazy, that I didn't say anything unbiblical. They taught me to pray appropriate prayers for a public church service, prayers that were elegant and organized, that were safe, and nice and really were more for the audience than they were an expression of my deepest being to my creator in the sermon on the mount that we've been studying through throughout the summer jesus explains in this passage we're going to look at today that we shouldn't worry about what people are going to think about our prayer if i called on you right now i was like hey pray out loud i was like hey caden you want to come up here and pray out like you'd be like Where's the back door, right? You're like, I'm getting out of here. I hate this place. Why why am I here? Like, it would make us all nervous. But what Jesus is saying is, our prayers aren't for people. It doesn't matter how good somebody thinks it sounds. It matters how honest and real and raw we're being with our God. He's not impressed with fancy words. 
and beautiful delivery. Sometimes people pray really beautiful prayers, and they have really dirty, unhealthy, dark hearts. And God's much more interested in us being honest and real. He longs for raw, honest conversations. Flowery prayers may impress people, but raw, honest prayers impress God. Um, sometimes I talk to young people or kids or people new to the faith, and they'll pray aloud, and they usually say something like this, I'm not very good at this, like, don't judge me, I'm sorry if this sounds bad, and then they pray something. And what they mean is, my prayers don't sound like the cold, dead, repetitive, but carefully organized prayers of someone who has been doing this for a long time. I think many times God's much more interested in those prayers. Um, I had a friend bring his church up from Virginia a few weeks ago, and uh, it was a group of young people, so people between 13 and 17, and so um, myself and their youth pastor, we were out here praying around the area, walking around, just praying for people, and I asked a couple of the 13-year-olds, I was like, hey, would you pray? And they're like, I, I don't really pray out loud. I was like, it's okay, go ahead. And they prayed great prayers. I mean, it was truly honest just straightforward prayers. And they're like, I'm sorry, that was so bad. I'm like, that was so good. God loved that prayer. Sometimes I pray prayers that sound really good, that people are like, oh, man, what a wordsmith. What a, and it has nothing to do with God. Many times the prayers of children and people new to the faith are some of the most raw and honest prayers because they aren't trying to project their spirituality to someone listening. They are simply trying to talk to God. Anybody ever swear in a prayer? You don't have to raise your hand. Have you ever just been like, this is so messed up, and you just like express this swear word out in a prayer? And you're like, Alex, I would never do that. God would be so offended. He would kill me, right? God wants your prayers to be real and honest. And have you ever read the Psalms? The Psalms are filled with people yelling at God, pouring out raging protests to a silent heaven, God's not so insecure that if you yell at him, he's going to be like, how dare you speak to me like that? God wants us to be honest. He can handle our words of protest, our words of anger, and our disappointment. What he doesn't want us to be is fake. To look up and think, oh God, everything's good. It's all just so great. I love it all. Like, be honest with him. He wants honest, raw prayers. He doesn't want our safe prayers that so often in church we pray that sound really nice, but don't convey what we're feeling. And Jesus warns his followers that our tendency will begin to, to begin over time to use prayer to garner attention for ourselves and to lose all sense that is, it is for God. Have you ever had someone leading in prayer out loud? And you can tell they're talking to the people in the room. They're not talking to God at all. And they're like, I really hope, I remember I was in this church one time and the pastor front, he's like, Lord, I know you want your people to give. You want to bless them, but you want them to give so you can bless them. I know right now you're telling them to reach into their pockets and pull out their money. I'm like, you're not talking to God. You're talking to me. You want my money. Like, that's not a prayer. That's a manipulation. Jesus knows that our tendency will be to make prayer into something emotionless, something manipulative, something cold and dead and formal, and in the process, we will forget that prayer is about being with God, not just getting what we want from God. Let's look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 5. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. 
For they love to pray standing up in the synagogues and on the street corners so that everyone sees that they're praying. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. That's all they get. They get noticed by people. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward, will reward you. When you pray, don't keep babbling on like pagans. Like, God, please give it to me. 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 Like, if I say enough pleases, he has to do it, right? He says, don't keep babbling like the pagans. They think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you even ask the point of prayer is not to impress people. The point of prayer is not to badger God until he gives you what he wants. The point of prayer is to spend time with Jesus. To stop and center yourself and bring him to the center of your mind and sit in his presence. The best indicator of our spiritual maturity is not what good speakers we are up on stage or how well we play or how many projects we do or how well we know the Bible. The best indicator of our spiritual maturity is how much we enjoy being with Jesus in prayer. Not how good our prayers sound, but how much we enjoy being with him in prayer. And let's be honest, most of us aren't out on the streets out here, like, impressing people with our prayers. Like, gather around, I'm about to pray a beautiful prayer. That's not a big issue for us in the modern times. Um, I think if we're honest, most of us, if we had stats, our spiritual stat for prayer would probably be one of our lowest stats. I mean, I, I think our society moves so fast that it's really hard to be a prayerful people. In the 90s, I collected Marvel trading cards. I had a bunch of X-Men trading cards, and they're actually worth a bunch of money now. But like so many things, I was stupid and got rid of them. But they had these stats on the back, and it's like Magneto's strength, his agility, his durability, you know, his intelligence. Imagine if you had a prayer stat. I think our prayer stat would be really, really low. If we had a card for our spiritual life, I think our prayer stat would probably be one of our lower numbers. Now, I don't think that Jesus is saying we can never lead others in prayer. Um, you know, when someone prays aloud, when someone leads in prayer, we're not supposed to be listening to them anyways. Like, if Marissa stands up here and prays before I speak, we're not supposed to be like, hmm, that sounds so good. Like, we're supposed to be praying along. She's leading us. She's guiding us into the things that we should be praying about. We're supposed to use her prayer to piggyback a prayer of our own when we lead in prayer what we mean is one person is guiding what we're all individually talking to god about one of the best things someone can say after your prayer is i didn't really hear what you had to say because i was praying to alongside you the other major mistake we make about prayer is that we believe that praying is about getting god to give us what we want honestly most of my life growing up in churches that's what i thought that's what people told me about prayer. They're like, you want something? Pray. God's like the vending machine that you don't have to put money in. You just talk to it, and he throws stuff your way. You want it? Pray. Uh, if we're honest, though, most of us pray like Homer Simpson with a one-directional shopping list with a silent sky. I think we got a video here. Homie, I... You can't talk. Praying. Dear Lord, the gods have been good to me, and I am thankful. For the first time in my life, everything is absolutely perfect, just the way it is. 
So here's the deal. You freeze everything as it is, and I won't ask for anything more. If that is okay, please give me absolutely no sign. Okay, deal. In gratitude, I present you this offering of cookies and milk. If you want me to eat them for you, give me no sign. That will be done. If you want me to do this, God, give me absolutely no sign. And as silly as that is, I know a lot of people who pray like that. If I'm honest, there's a few times I've prayed like this. You know, it's like, if you want me to date this person that I'm really attracted to and want to date already, give me absolutely no sign. Let me just do it, you know? Like, if you want me to take this job that really pays more and I really want to do it, give me absolutely no sign. Let me do it. If you agree, God, give me absolutely no sign. We need to pray like Jesus, not like Homer. And sadly, I think much of our American culture, even our American churches, have taught us to think about prayer much more like Homer than like Jesus. Jesus seems to have a completely different experience with prayer than I have. I think if we change our prayer lives, it's going to change our whole life. If we become students of how Jesus prayed, I think it will radically change us. In Luke 5, 16, it says, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. His disciples are like, hey, as we're telling this life story of Jesus, one of the things you need to know about him is he often went off to places by himself and prayed. Over and over again in the Gospels, we see Jesus withdraw from the crowds to pray, get up early to pray, stay up all night to pray. He didn't act like prayer was a chore. When I pray, I'm like, this is something I'm supposed to do. I'm a pastor. I'm a Christian. I should probably be praying. But I can't tell you that I, like, jump out of bed in the morning. I'm like, I just can't wait to pray. I'm ready to go. Like, that's usually not how I approach it. I'm like, I'm going to have to do this. Okay, focus my mind. Don't be distracted by anything. Jesus acted like prayer was a delight. When was the last time it felt like a delight? He acted like it was the lifeblood of his mission and that he could not function without it. Could one of our deepest problems as modern-day Christians be that we believe that we can function without meaningful moments of prayer in our life? Jesus prayed like I drink coffee. I can't live without coffee. I will die. It's a scientific fact. You try to get me to go more than a day without coffee, I will shrivel up and die. If you don't drink coffee, that's, yeah. I bring Darby coffee in the morning, and I set it down like you approach a tiger cage with, a, like, a, a ham bone or something, and then you back away, and you're like, let the tiger begin to eat the ham. It is now safe to approach, you know. I'm kidding, Darby. That was not in my notes, and I'm, I should have thought that through before I said that. <laughs> John Mark Homer says, prayer was the center of Jesus' life with God. Is prayer the center of your life with God? It's not. It's not mine. It should be, but it's not. If we want to be students of how Jesus lived and loved, prayer needs to be the center of our lives too. In Luke 11, 1, Jesus' Jesus's disciples see the way that he prays, sees how much he enjoys it, see how often he does it, and they say to him, will you teach us to pray? And you know what he says to them? You have any idea? What does he say? Yes, he teaches what exactly the same thing that he says here on the Sermon on the Mount. He teaches them what we call the Lord's Prayer, our Father. 
Or, or I've heard dozens of sermons on this passage and dozens of dissections about what to pray about. But I think Jesus was doing more than just that. I think he was letting us know how we could approach prayer in the same way that he did. He's giving us some of his philosophical framework about prayer so that we can go into it with the same attitude that he does. How we could love it instead of loathing it. So let's see what he has to say. Let's read this next part of the Sermon on the Mount together. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 15. It's going to be up here. If you have a phone or an app, you can open that up. If you have a Bible, you can open that up. Let's read it together. This, then, is how you should pray. This is just me reading. Let's read it together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Notice how Jesus begins here. He prays, our Father, not my Father. Over and over again, he talks about our debts, our bread. There is no I in how Jesus approached prayer. Let me tell you something about my prayers. They're very selfish and I-focused. They're like, this is what I'm facing. This is what I need you to do. This is what I want. This is I, 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 I. And Jesus keeps saying our. Our bread. Our debts. Our Father. In Jesus' mind, prayers were for the benefit of a people, never just for an individual. Our individualistic prayers in America stand in stark contrast to Jesus' model of prayer. He says, our Father, our bread, our debts. Jesus sees prayer as an act of an individual on behalf of a people. We need to begin to pray more for others and communities and cities and people around us. And it begins to change our prayers when we move from a selfish request into a prayer for a people. Imagine what you pray for and how you pray. Are your prayers all about you or are they all about God and others? Jesus saw his story as connected to other people in community and prayer was not about him impressing people. It was about him helping other people. Next, notice that Jesus calls God Father. Rarely does Jesus ever call him just God. He calls him many times his Father, our Father. I think the word Father in our prayer should make us stop and consider who we're talking to. We're not just talking to a big, powerful genie in the sky or some cosmic force. He is a good, generous Father. Now, some of you had great fathers, and you're like, man, it's so easy to call God Father. And some of you had mediocre fathers, and you're like, eh, I guess I can call him Father. And some of you had garbage fathers, and every time you say it, you're like, my father was pretty much a devil in human skin, and the very word triggers you. Know this, your heavenly father is everything that your human father failed to be. We're talking to a God who is with us and for us, who longs to do good for us and to see us grow and mature. A father who will never leave us or forsake us. A father who sees in us the potential to be more and good, who sees in us everything that we could be who doesn't bring up the failures of our past, but praises the progress we've made. He is a great father. The next thing Jesus prays for is the name of God to be hallowed. 
Um, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What a weird word, right? Like, when do we ever say hallow? Usually when I'm watching Harry Potter, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, or Halloween, right? This is the only time I ever use the word hallow. So what does it mean to be hallowed? Hallow means to make holy or to lift high in special honor. As students of Jesus, we have taken the name of Jesus upon us. When the Philadelphia Eagles run out onto the court, people aren't like, are those the Dolphins? Is that the Miami Dolphins? That's the Ravens. No, they're wearing jerseys, right? So we know that's the Eagles. Go Birds, right? Those are our team. That's our team. When we walk out into the world, we walk around with the name of Jesus on us because we call ourselves Christians. And as we walk around with the name of Jesus upon us, we should pray that as representatives of his name, that we elevate the name of Jesus by the way that we speak and the way that we behave, the way that we live and love, instead of dragging his name through the mud. Many times Christians do more damage to the name of Jesus than they elevate the name of Jesus. Jesus said that we should ask for the strength as a community to bear his name well. We don't bear it alone, we bear it together to act like he acted, to live and love like he did. We walk around with his name, and the way we treat people either hallows his name or forces his name down into the dirt. Next, Jesus says our prayers should center around the kingdom of God. We should pray for Jesus' rule and reign to expand here on this rebel planet like it does in the spaces God controls. You and I choose to live with Jesus as our king, and the kingdom of God is where Jesus gets what he wants. When we pray for the kingdom to come, we're praying that we live and love like Jesus, and we're praying that more people submit to his role and reign in their lives. We're praying that they have a leadership change in their hearts and minds, that they stop saying, I'm going to get what I want, and they start saying, I want Jesus to get what he wants. That's not usually how I approach prayer. I usually get down on my knees and I pray, and I'm like, Here's what I want, Jesus. Get busy. And I should be saying, what I want in this world is what you want, not what I want. Jesus tells us to pray for God's will to be done. Prayer isn't about getting your will done on earth. It is about getting God's will done on earth. When we pray in Jesus' name, that doesn't mean tacking a canned phrase, in Jesus' name I pray, on, amen, onto the end of your prayers. That's how I was kind of taught in churches. They're like, you can pray a really good prayer, but unless you put this ending on it, it's just not good. Like, that's how you got to find it. It's like the period at the end of your prayer. You got to pray the prayer and then say, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. And I like, I had that so memorized, like I would literally like pray a three-second prayer, like, God, help me not to hit this guy. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You know, or like, oh, I've only got a few seconds to pray here. I'm about to walk into this meeting. Help this meeting go well. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Because it's like, it's the magical spell. And if you don't put that magical spell on the end of your prayer, it's not going to come true, right? Like, you have to do that. That's not what Jesus is talking about at all. Praying in Jesus' name means praying as a representative of Jesus. If someone has power of attorney, they sign in your name. We are praying in the name of Jesus, so we are asking for what Jesus would want if he was standing in your shoes in your place and time. Praying in Jesus' name does not mean tacking a phrase onto the end of your prayer. It means I have carefully considered what I am praying about, and I am asking for something that Jesus would want, not something that I necessarily would want. Prayer is a form of 
discipleship. By spending time with Jesus in prayer, we become like him. We begin to think about what he wants, and we begin to ask for what he wants, and we begin to work for the outcomes he has led us to pray for. We usually think of our prayers as one-sided. Like, I pray, and I'm like, if you want me to do this, Jesus, give me absolutely no sign. But I think the prayer that Jesus enjoyed is a conversation, not a monologue. Dallas Willard, um, one of the Christian thinkers who's had more of a profound influence on how I think about faith in the modern world than anyone else, he said, prayer is talking to God about what we are doing together. Perhaps our prayers are so one-sided because we are not doing anything with God. So we have nothing to talk about. Prayer is talking to God about what we are doing together. How are you joining with where God is working in the world? What are you doing with God? What mission are you working with God in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your family, in the world? God wants you to be a partner, a co-laborer, as he reconciles people far away from God with himself. Could our problem be we have nothing to talk about because we are not living our everyday lives as a collaboration between heaven and earth? We aren't doing anything with God, and so we have nothing to talk about. We have nothing except an endless list of things that I want that Jesus probably wouldn't. When we elevate our ordinary moments, we begin to see every relationship we have as a divine assignment. When we recognize that the people all around us have been strategically placed to be impacted by Jesus' love through us, all of a sudden we have something to pray about. And God has something to say to us when we pray. Often we accuse God of being silent, but many times I'm in too much of a rush to sit and listen for God's voice. Making prayer a monologue is a lot quicker for my schedule, and I'm a busy person. And I'm like, okay, here, God, here's what I need you to do. Okay, bye. And I don't sit and wait and listen for him to talk. But it makes my prayers miserable and boring instead of enjoyable. Prayer requires us to build our spiritual muscles with the spiritual practices of patience and solitude and silence. And I just do not have the time for that in my schedule. And so I'm just going to put up with boring, pathetic prayers because I'm... No, we need to carve out the time. We have little or no desire for prayer because we have not built the appetite for the things of the Spirit. A few weeks ago, I went to the gym for the first time in a long time. Like, I'm talking years. Um, a really long time. I could barely bench press 50 pounds. They, like, put weights on it, and I couldn't lift it. I was like, just take the weights off. Let me lift the bar. And I'm, like, trying to lift just the bar. And I'm like, Aah! And I barely get the bar up. And I'm like, yes. And they're like, that bar was 45 pounds. And I'm like, I'm going to say it's 50. My body has the capacity to bench press much more weight. I am built to be able to bench press much more weight, but it will take time and training to build those muscles. It will be the things I do every day that either increase my capacity and ultimately my desire to lift more weight. And the reverse is also true. If I'm like, you know what? I'm not eating enough junk food. I'm gonna eat junk food four times a day instead of one time a day. I'm going to eat junk food a hundred times a day, and I'm going to sit on this couch and become fully sedentary. Someday, I might not be able to get off the couch, let alone lift 50 pounds, let alone lift 300 pounds. Someday, if I continue these unhealthy practices, I may reach a point where I cannot even walk. 
Our spiritual lives work much the same way. We say we want to pray, but we live every day as if we want to be anxious and afraid. We are not training ourselves to desire prayer. We are taking daily steps to be hurried and rushed and anxious instead of prayerful. There isn't a switch to turn off our anxiety, but that doesn't mean that we don't have some say in it. It just means that we choose slowly over time. We don't choose all at once. You can live on such a diet of daily anxiety that we have little appetite for prayer, and we can live on that diet for a long time until eventually it is not just hard to pray, it is literally impossible to pray. The spiritual practices of fasting, simplicity, silence, and solitude, as these are practiced daily and weekly and monthly over a long period of time, they will build our hunger for prayer. They will build our hunger for the presence of God. If you don't want to pray, I can promise you, you haven't been practicing these three spiritual practices of Jesus. You haven't been fasting. You haven't been practicing simplicity and silence and solitude. Jesus claims that living and loving like him is the most abundant life that any human can live. But we don't just enjoy that abundance because we're like, I like Jesus, give me abundance. He's like, live like me. Live out my teachings, obey me. If you love me, obey what I taught. If we refuse to live the way that he daily lived, we don't get to enjoy the abundant life that he wants us to. The spiritual disciplines of Jesus form us into people who long to be with God the Father. Next, Jesus advises us to pray for what we need only for today. Man, that, I am not a person who usually thinks about today. I'm usually a person who thinks about three months from now or three years from now. I like to live way out in the future and be totally absent in the present. And my wife knows many times that's very frustrating when you're like, your spouse is sitting on the couch with you and you're talking to them and they're three years out in the future like dreaming about something, you know? I'm not a person, I am a person who has to work really hard at being in the present. But Jesus says we should pray for what we need for today. No more, no less. Much of prayer is centering myself into the present moment with God. Not dwelling on the past or longing for the future, but entering into my present reality with the abundant goodness of God available to me right now, enjoying God right now, not in the next life when I die, not in some past memory that I really enjoyed. Right now, he wants to meet with us. He wants us to listen to him. He wants to meet our present needs. I spend a lot of time asking for enough abundance so that I can live without a daily dependence on God. Humanity was designed to coexist with God, not achieve independence from God. Often I ask for things to make me happy instead of finding my deepest happiness in him. And Jesus continues his teaching on prayer with this profound statement. He says, we should pray to be forgiven by the same measure that we have shown forgiveness to other human beings. That's not how I usually pray. I say, God, forgive me a lot more than I forgive other people. <laughs> because other people annoy me, God. But you know me. I'm Alex. You understand why I did that. Just forgive me, right? I'm not going to forgive them because they're jerks. But please forgive me. <laughs> Jesus says we should pray and ask God to forgive us by the same measure that we've forgiven others. In case his audience missed how radical this statement is, he circles back to it again at the end of the prayer in verses 14 and 15. So what does this mean? Will God really not forgive us if we don't forgive others? 
Jesus makes it clear that if we are going to live and love like him, we will forgive other people just as he has forgiven us. Radically, filled with grace, without hesitation. In other words, only when we forgive others will we truly internalize that we have been forgiven by God. If you feel like, man, God just can't forgive me for something, it might be because there's someone you won't forgive for something. If you struggle to believe that you are truly loved and forgiven by God, it might be because you have not truly forgiven those who have wronged you. Jesus then asks that God does not lead us into temptation. Now, does that mean that God's like calculating up in heaven and he's like, hmm, I'm going to put a little trap over here. And we pray, God, please don't lead me into that trap. And he's like, ah, okay, I'll take away this trap. They didn't pray this time, though. Drop another trap. No. God is, I mean, does that mean that God is like leading us into traps like in a, a lab rat in a maze? No. The translation can be tricky from Greek into English, but becoming like Jesus does not mean that you will have the easiest life. What he's praying is, don't lead us into the temptation to take the easiest path. The most abundant and fulfilling life is available to us in Jesus, but it does not mean that it is always the easiest path through life. Nothing worth doing is easy, and following Jesus is no exception. We have an unhealthy expectation in America that the easiest path must be God's will. The path with the most comfort and most safety and most money must be God's will, right? No. Why? Because we know the will of God led Jesus to the desert to be tempted by the devil. The will of God led Jesus to the cross to be crucified and to die for the sins of the world. Don't confuse the path of least resistance with the will of God. In Matthew 7, 13, Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. He says, it's a clear, safe, enjoyable, pleasant, easy path that leads to destruction. But narrow, tight, uncomfortable, difficult is the path that leads to life. Jesus teaches us the exact opposite of so much of our culture. Often the easiest path is not God clearing the obstacles for you. Obstacles make strong, resilient disciples who live and love like Jesus. Often the clear path has been cleared by devils to lead you as far away from God as possible. So Jesus says we should pray. We should pray that we don't take the bait, that we don't do what is easy, that we don't fall into the trap of doing what is comfortable and safe and financially most viable. We should follow him even if it leads into hard, difficult paths. We don't fall into the trap that has been set to lull us into spiritual apathy. So what do we do with all this? This week, I'll put up on our social media some steps to begin to practice the spiritual disciplines of fasting and simplicity and silence and solitude to begin to develop those spiritual muscles and that spiritual hunger so we long to pray. But I also think that memor memorizing the Lord's Prayer is a good place to start, and praying it each morning is a good way to remember how Jesus prayed, how Jesus felt about prayer, how we should think about prayer. Um, I've wrote out the prayer in my own words here, and that's how I'm going to end. And I think that praying this each day begins to prepare my heart and my mind to live as a student of Jesus throughout the day. Here's how I rewrote the prayer for myself as I prayed in the mornings, as I try to remember how much Jesus enjoyed prayer and what he's called me to do as I am his disciple. 
Our Father in heaven, your name be high and lifted up as we carry it into the world today. Your kingdom come in us and come through us. Your will, not our will, be done on earth just like it is in heaven. Give us what we need today, no more, no less. Forgive us our wrongs by the same measure of mercy that we show to those who have wronged us. And do not allow us to be ensnared by what's easy, but deliver us from the evil one. Lord Jesus, forgive me for so often worrying more about what words I'm using in prayer and so often praying fake, cold, dead, artificial prayers. God, give me a heart and a hunger that longs to be in your presence. Give me the patience to sit quietly and listen for your voice. To not always be in such a rush to get to the next thing that I miss the moments that you want to spend with me. Lord, build my spiritual muscles of patience, my spiritual muscles of fasting and silence and solitude. Lord, may these mold me. May they transform me. May they make me into someone like you. Someone who longs to spend time with the Father, who sees prayer not as a chore, but as an amazing opportunity to have communion with the one true God, the living God, the creator of everything, the three in one, the God who came to earth and died in our place and rose from the dead and invites us all, anyone who calls on the name of Jesus to be saved. God, I pray that your spirit inside us, who is always praying for us, will give us such a hunger to be with you, not to ask things of you, with us.